as well. Um, our presenter tonight is Father David Pignato. Father David is a priest from the Diocese of Fall River, Massachusetts. Um, I got to know him when he was a seminarian and I was studying as a layman in Rome. And he was in the same class of ordinations as uh, some of our priests and knows some of our priests who study in Rome at the same time, uh, Father Jim Mason, Father J.P. Morgan, and some others as well, Father Dave Desmond, and so on. He is going to be presenting tonight on redemptive suffering. The title that I gave the talk um, in close consultation with him was uh, Suffering, No Pain, No Gain. So what is, the, what is the place of suffering in the life of the Christian? And what does, what does our faith as Catholics tell us about suffering and its, its value to us? So at this time, I would like to present uh, Father Dave Pignato. Thank you, Chris. If we could please just begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty God, we ask you to open our minds to the mystery of redemptive suffering, so that during this season of Lent, as we prepare to celebrate the Paschal mystery, we may also prepare to pass from the cross to the glory of eternal life. We ask this through Christ our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, before I begin, I want to thank you for having me here and thank Chris for the invitation. This is my third trip to Sioux Falls. I was here for the ordination of my classmates uh, almost four years ago now. And then two years ago, I came and gave a retreat to the seminarian. So I'm becoming a regular here in Sioux Falls, and I very much enjoy the visits. I also like coming here because I think that some of the best things that are happening in the church today are happening here. Uh, as Chris mentioned, I studied with uh, a lot of your new priests, and I'm very, very impressed and inspired by them. I, they're great men. I wish we uh, could steal some of them away back to my home diocese in Fall River. But uh, it's just it's an exciting place to be for the church, and it's an exciting place for me to visit. The topic tonight is the mystery of redemptive suffering from the cross to glory. And I'd like to begin first with a reading from the Acts, uh, I'm sorry, from the Gospel of St. Luke. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. 
And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. During this holy season of Lent, we as a church are once again gearing up to celebrate the Paschal Mystery. The Paschal Mystery is the mystery of our Lord's suffering, death, and resurrection. It refers specifically to those three days when Jesus was arrested, suffered, died on the cross, and was buried, and then rose again to new life. The Paschal Mystery is the central mystery of our Christian faith because it was through the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ that God's saving plan was accomplished once and for all. We could say together with the incarnation of Christ, the Paschal Mystery is one of the two turning points in the drama of creation because it marked our reconciliation with God. It was the climax in the story of God's love for man. And that's why the church celebrates the Paschal Mystery each year with such great solemnity during the Holy Triduum, during Holy Week and Easter. And that's also why we set apart this period of 40 days to prepare well to celebrate so great a mystery. We need Lent. We need all 40 days to get ready to celebrate the Paschal Mystery because it was so profound and because, as I say, it's one of the central mysteries of our faith. Now, the Paschal Mystery is Paschal because it was a passing through or a Passover of suffering. It's a mystery because it poses the very difficult question of why it had to happen. I think every Christian wonders at least once in his or her lifetime why Jesus had to suffer, why his terrible passion was necessary. We wonder about this because we know that it was necessary. In the days leading up to his passion, Jesus kept telling his followers that he would die and rise again. He kept predicting the Paschal mystery. In fact, he kept saying that it had to happen. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus tries to teach his followers that he must be put to death. In St. Luke's Gospel, we read, And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written of the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hid from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And then, even after Jesus rose from the dead, when he walked unrecognized with those two confused and discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things 
and enter into his glory. Even after his resurrection, Jesus was trying to convince his disciples that his terrible suffering had to happen. The reason that Jesus kept saying that he must die is that he was convinced that his death was his Father's will. Could God have chosen another way? Of course, he's God. But the fact was, he chose the death of his Son as the way that we would be reconciled. And Jesus knew that. The night before he died, when he agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, all things are possible to you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knew that the reason he had been sent into the world was to accomplish the work of our redemption. He had been sent on a mission to reconcile us to God. And he knew that his father had chosen his death as the way in which our redemption would be accomplished. And because he was determined to fulfill his mission, he was also determined to accept his suffering and death. Jesus was absolutely convinced that his death and resurrection, the Paschal mystery, would be the central event in the drama of his life. And with this confidence, he surrendered to the will of his Father for our sake, even though it meant accepting the cross. I think another term for the Paschal mystery could be the doctrine of the cross. It is the truth that glory is achieved only through suffering. And it applies to all of us as it applied to Jesus. Because Jesus was the perfect man, he is the model for how we are to live. And if we are called to imitate Christ, who surrendered to and accepted his Father's will for him by embracing the cross, then that means we are also called to carry the cross in our own lives. Jesus knew this, and so he repeatedly told his followers, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For our Lord, it was crucial that his disciples understand the doctrine of the cross. Jesus knew the truth of this doctrine, that glory is achieved only through suffering, because he knew that he had been born into the world precisely to die on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God. He knew that his Father had chosen his death as the way in which the glory of our salvation would come about. And so our Lord approached his death with confidence that by means of the cross, he would accomplish the work of our redemption. As I said, could God have chosen another way? Of course he could have. But the simple truth is that God has chosen suffering as the means of achieving the glory of our salvation. Now, this choice that God made of the death of his son as the road to salvation is certainly mysterious. And it's something that we might never completely understand in our lives. But we do get a glimpse into the meaning of this mystery when we consider four things. First of all, suffering is one thing that is available to everyone, even if only by the inevitability of our death. 
Certainly suffering will come in other ways too, but at least by our death, which is inevitable, suffering is available to everyone. And so by making suffering the road to salvation, God has made salvation available to everyone. Everyone, that is, who is willing to carry the cross. As we read in the letter to the Hebrews, For it was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. One of the reasons that God may have chosen suffering as the way to glory is because it would be available to all of us. Secondly, we see the wisdom of God when we consider that he has revealed his power by converting what was the penalty for sin into the means of reconciliation and union with God. It was suffering that was precisely the result and the consequence of the first sin. Before the original sin, suffering was not part of the human condition. Suffering was introduced into our condition as a result of that first sin. But then on the cross, God used suffering to win our redemption. He converted what was the punishment for sin into the very way in which we are freed from that punishment. God turned the meaning of suffering on its head. He redeemed it, and then suffering became the path to glory. And by doing that, as I say, God revealed his wisdom and his power. So that would be a second reason, possibly, why God chose suffering. Of all the choices he had, why he chose suffering as the way to glory. Then thirdly, when we contemplate the cross, we also see the truth that good conquers evil. In Christ on the cross, we see the one who was completely innocent suffering for those of us who were guilty. We see a great injustice, but one that becomes the sign of God's triumph. Just when love and innocence and holiness were thought to be defeated on the cross by evil, by sin, and by death, just when the darkness of sin seemed to extinguish the light of love, just when it seemed that all was lost on that Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago, the victory was handed to life. When Christ opened his arms on the cross and hung between heaven and earth, the debt was paid. Man was reconciled to God. The gates of paradise were flung open, and we were redeemed. The effects of the crucifixion were cosmic. All of creation was reunited with God, its creator, and the great divide between heaven and earth was finally closed. From the greatest moral evil ever committed, the rejection and murder of God's only Son, God brought about the greatest of goods, the glorification of His Son and our redemption. And so when we contemplate the mystery of the cross, we see the victory of the holiness of Christ, and we are reminded that we also are to conquer evil with goodness. We are to overcome sin with holiness and with love. So that would be a third possible reason why our Lord chose suffering as the road to salvation, because it reminds us in the world 
that evil is conquered with good. And fourthly, we understand more of the mystery of why God chose suffering when we remember that the willingness to suffer, the willingness to endure suffering with love, reveals a person's love at the deepest level. It was our Lord himself who said, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. When we look upon the crucifix and recall the suffering of our Lord, we also look upon the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. It's a scene, an image that boggles people's minds. A woman who is not a Christian once said to me, you know, if anyone put up a picture of someone being executed or murdered and looked at the picture often, we would think that such a person is somehow disturbed or deranged. But you Christians hang on your walls, over your beds and over your desks, the image of a dead man on a cross, and you gaze upon it as if it were the most beautiful thing you ever saw. She, of course, was quite right in spite of her struggle to understand the meaning of the cross. Before the death of Christ, the cross was just a symbol of death. It symbolized gruesome execution, excruciating pain, humiliation, disgrace, and defeat. But because of the one who died upon it and then rose from the dead, the cross has now become a symbol of victory, a symbol of salvation, and a symbol of love. To the world, the cross is only a sign of failure, a sign of suffering and death. But to those of us who believe in the one who died upon it, the cross is the sign of victory. It is a sign of life and of love, something that that poor woman who spoke to me could not understand. The fact that God has chosen suffering as the means to salvation, as the means to glory, is inescapable, no matter how badly we might like to think otherwise. I think perhaps the reason we often hesitate to accept the doctrine of the cross is that we know that God is calling all of us to share in his plan of salvation. We know that we're not called to be passive spectators who stand by on the sidelines of life, watching as God unfolds his project of sanctification and salvation. No, we know for sure that we're called to be active participants in that great project. We're called to be the main actors in the drama of God's plan of salvation. God is working out this plan to save souls, to bring them back to him. And he's asking all of us to be the main actors in that drama. If God has chosen suffering as the instrument for bringing about salvation, well, then I'm afraid that means that we have also been called to suffer. Perhaps you've heard of the universal call to holiness. The church has done a pretty good job of getting the word out on that one. Well, there's also a universal call to redemptive suffering. In his apostolic letter on the Christian meaning of human suffering, which is what I think is perhaps one of the most beautiful things our Holy Father has written in his 26 years as Pope. But in that letter on the Christian meaning of human suffering, 
Pope John Paul II writes, Our redemption was accomplished through the suffering of Christ. The Redeemer suffered in place of man and for man. Every man has his own share in the redemption. Each one is also called to share in that suffering through which the redemption was accomplished. He is called to share in that suffering through which all human suffering has also been redeemed. In bringing about the redemption through suffering, Christ has also raised human suffering to the level of the redemption. Thus, each man in his own suffering can also become a sharer in the redemptive suffering of Christ. And so our Lord says, If anyone wants to be a follower of mine, let him renounce himself and take up his cross and follow me. Being a Christian means imitating Christ, and that includes being willing to carry our own crosses and to participate in God's plan of salvation for the world by entering into and embracing the mystery of redemptive suffering. As St. Peter wrote, Christ suffered for you and left you an example to have you follow in his footsteps. But still, we often resist accepting this truth. When the cross lands in our own lives, we often think there must be another way. Surely God does not want me to suffer. But being holy and following Christ requires accepting the truth that we are called to carry our own crosses. We are called to share in the mystery of redemptive suffering. To take up a cross means to accept the reality of suffering. Now this requires accepting the fact that God allows suffering even though he does not desire it. We can probably all think of all sorts of things that God has allowed, and surely we know that he has not desired them. Think of any great evil in the world and the suffering that comes about from it. We can't blame God for that. He has not caused it, but it's, there's no question he has allowed it. So the first part of taking up our own cross requires accepting that reality, that fact, that while God allows suffering, he does not desire it. It requires accepting the hard fact that suffering exists and happens, even when a person does nothing to deserve it. That's even worse, right? When suffering happens to good people who are trying to be holy, who have done nothing to bring it on themselves. But taking up the cross means more than just accepting the reality of suffering. It also means to endure it with love. It's one thing to suffer, but it's quite another thing to suffer with love. <clears throat> Taking up a cross means to keep on living in the midst of suffering, trusting that suffering is not useless. The world will try to tell us that there's no point to suffering, that how could any good ever come out of suffering? And so suffering is to be avoided at all costs. In fact, the world will even say that we are entitled to commit sins if we have to, to avoid suffering. But taking up the cross means trusting that God has redeemed suffering and has converted it into the means for unleashing graces into the world. As our Holy Father has taught, 
It is precisely suffering permeated by the spirit of Christ's sacrifice that is the irreplaceable mediator and author of the good things which are indispensable for the world's salvation. It is suffering more than anything else which clears the way for the grace which transforms human souls. Suffering more than anything else makes present in the history of humanity the powers of the redemption. The Holy Father goes on to explain that there is among the faithful what he calls a marvelous exchange of spiritual gifts in virtue of which the holiness of one person benefits others in a way far exceeding the harm which the sin of one has inflicted upon others. He says there are people who leave in their wake a surfeit of love, of suffering born well, of purity and truth, which involves and sustains others. This means if we want to help God get souls to heaven, if we want to stand by Christ and pitch in in the work of salvation, then sure, we can pray and we can fast. But according to the Holy Father, the most useful thing we can do is to pick up our cross and carry it, to accept suffering when it comes and to endure it with love. According to Holy Father, that's what will most merit graces to be unleashed from heaven and convert souls to God. So this is part of the mystery of redemptive suffering and it's part of the mystery that we have to accept, especially during this holy season of Lent, as I say, when we're gearing up to celebrate the Paschal mystery. Now, the cross takes different forms for different people. <clears throat> for many, it is a long and painful illness. For others, it is the tragedy of lo losing a loved one, perhaps far too soon. For some, it is an injury or a disability or an addiction. At home, I work in one of our prisons, and most of the men I work with suffer from addiction. And there's no question that that is the cross in their lives. They want so badly, they can almost taste the freedom that they could have if they were not addicted, and yet they are often powerless. They simply cannot overcome it, and it's a cross that they need to embrace. From in the city where I live, unfortunately, it is the most common cross. We have a terrible, terrible problem with drug addiction. For some, the cross is the obligation to remain faithful to the vows of a failed but valid marriage. And I know many people who heroically do this. For others, it is the agony of the inability to have children. For some, it is the scars of abuse. And for others, it is the pressures and fears that come from unemployment or financial crisis, especially when children are involved. For some, it is the pain of watching their children lose their faith and leave the church. Whatever the cross might be, Jesus asks us to take it up and carry it with the trust that it can save souls, just as his cross brought salvation to the world. Just as any mother knows that the joy of a new baby comes only after the pain of labor, just as any graduate knows that the satisfaction of a college degree comes only after years of study, 
Just as any athlete knows that the trophy of victory comes only after hours of hard discipline and practice, so does every Christian know that the glory of eternal life comes only after the suffering of the cross. This is the doctrine of the cross, that glory is achieved only through suffering. It is the paschal mystery, and it is also the pattern of our lives, because reality is cruciform. The cross is the standard of our lives. It is the measure of the world and of reality, even if the world refuses to admit it. The cross always seems to land in each person's life, and the decision to pick it up and carry it is one of the things that makes a person holy. The cross teaches us about self-sacrifice, self-denial, and gift of self, which is the road to human fulfillment, the path to true happiness, the path to eternal life. The Holy Father says that those who would follow Christ in search of eternal life are invited to walk the royal road of the cross. And those who do embrace the cross, those who do pick it up and carry it, discover a very interesting thing. When they endure and offer suffering in their lives with love, when they carry the cross as Christ did, they discover that the cross is not dead and dry and splintery and painful, but rather it is alive and moist and green and life-giving because sacrifice is what gives life to ourselves and to others. Ask the mothers there holding the little ones. Sacrifice gives life to others. And in this, we can see part of the mystery of the cross. I think a very beautiful and moving example of how the Christian is called to live the, su the suffering and death of Christ is found in one of the most recently declared saints of the church. Perhaps many of you have already heard of her, St. Gianna Beretta Mola. St. Gianna lived in Italy in the last century, and she was a doctor, as well as the wife and mother of three children when she became pregnant with her fourth child. And toward the end of her second month, Gianna started experiencing sharp pains, and the diagnosis was a fibrous tumor in the ovary. Because she was a physician, she knew what the options were. Surgical procedures that would either directly or indirectly take the life of her unborn child, or removal of the tumor in such a way that the pregnancy was saved despite the ongoing risks to her life. She unhesitatingly made the choice for her child. The tumor was removed and the risky pregnancy continued. Shortly before her delivery, she repeated her decision to her doctor. She told him, if you have to choose, there should be no doubt. Choose, I demand it, the life of the baby. Save the baby. On April 21, 1962, which was Good Friday that year, little Gianna Emanuela Mola was born. A week later, Gianna, her mother, died from multiple complications involved in carrying her fourth child to term and giving birth. Gianna was laid out in the family living room 
which was her children's playroom, so that the enormous crowds of people whom she had served as a doctor could pay their respects. And after the funeral mass, her casket, covered with the red roses long associated with the gift of one's life to Christ, was carried to the cemetery as Pietro, her husband, holding the hands of the two oldest children, walked behind. Gianna Beretta Mola was beatified by Pope John Paul II on April 24, 1994, and her daughter, little Gianna Emanuela, for whom Gianna had died, carried the offertory gifts to the Pope during the Mass. And fittingly enough, the miracle confirming Gianna Beretta Mola's heroic sanctity involved a difficult pregnancy, which was successfully carried to term through the new saint's intercession. And she was canonized by the Pope last year on May 16, 2004. <coughs> the cross landed in St. Gianna's life in a very tragic and dramatic way, one that she probably never imagined. But faced with the cross, she summoned the courage to pick it up and carry it, even though it ultimately meant that she would have to surrender her life to save the life of her child. She surrendered to the mystery of redemptive suffering and imitated her Lord by giving her life. And in doing so, she lived the Paschal mystery. In one of his recent apostolic letters to the church, our Holy Father describes the beauty of the Holy Rosary as a method of prayer. And he explains that one of the reasons why the Rosary is so helpful is that he says it marks the rhythm of human life. In the Rosary, we contemplate the joyful, luminous, sorrowful, and glorious mysteries of our Lord's life. We begin by thinking about the joy of his birth, followed now by contemplating the wonder of his work, his preaching, and his miracles. And then we contemplate his suffering, his passion, his death, before we consider the glory of his resurrection. And the Holy Father says that when we contemplate the mystery of our Lord's life in this order, we also see the truth about our own lives. He writes, Anyone who contemplates Christ through the various stages of his life cannot fail to perceive in him the truth about man. Just as Christ experienced joys and accomplishments followed by sufferings that led to the glory of his victory over death and eternal life, so too do we experience joys and pain followed later by happiness. When we're young, we have the joy of innocence. But as we get older, we're introduced to the suffering that comes from knowing that we and others are quite capable of sin with all of its painful consequences. And then, after we've endured great suffering, we are finally rewarded with the glory of being reunited with Christ. The pattern of our Lord's life seems to be the pattern or rhythm of our own lives as well. And this is something that we can contemplate in the Holy Rosary. But it also means, without doubt, that we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ in our own lives. As St. Paul wrote, For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our own mortal flesh. For sure, the doctrine of the cross is not easy. It's not easy to accept. No one wants to suffer. It's against our nature to desire or enjoy suffering. And the doctrine of the cross doesn't mean that we should go looking for suffering. What it means is that we should accept it when the cross lands in our lives. But when Jesus predicted his sufferings, and St. Peter objected by saying that he would never allow it to happen, Christ told him that he was thinking as men do, and not as God thinks. The doctrine of the cross is God's way of thinking, and it is easier to accept when we remember those four things I mentioned, which kind of give us a glimpse into the mystery of suffering, but also when we remember and keep in mind what lies on the other side of the cross. The cross of Christ brought about the glory of his resurrection. And those who share in the sufferings of Christ are also called through their own sufferings to share in his glory. <coughs> Excuse me. In his letter to the Romans, St. Paul says, We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this, this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And in his second letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul writes, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, because we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. St. Peter expressed the same conviction when he wrote in his first letter, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The point is, whatever suffering we endure in this lifetime simply does not even compare with the eternal glory that awaits us in heaven. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it so much as dawned on man what God has prepared for those who love him. The reward is worth any amount of suffering because even a lifelong cross, even a very heavy cross in this life, is only like the blink of an eye compared to eternal life. In the novel Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, the character Ivan is told an anecdote of a philosopher who refused to believe in an afterlife. And then upon his death, when he discovered that he was wrong, he was sentenced to walk a quadrillion miles in the dark before he would enter heaven. At first, he just refused and lay down for a thousand years before moving on. But the moment the gates of paradise were opened and he walked in, before he had been there for even two seconds, he cried out that those two seconds were worth walking not a quadrillion miles, but a quadrillion of quadrillions raised to the quadrillionth power. The glory of eternal life in heaven is worth any amount of suffering that we might endure in this life, which is only temporary. It's passing. And the glory of Christ is promised to any of us who will agree to pick up and carry our cross. The Paschal Mystery is the doctrine of the cross. 
It is what we are preparing during the season of Lent to celebrate. It's the mystery of redemptive suffering. And I think it is perhaps the hardest teaching of the Christian revelation. <clears throat> but it is also the basis for our hope in eternal life. Because we are called to imitate Christ who surrendered his life on the cross to save us, we are also called to accept suffering in our own lives, trusting that suffering is not useless. God has converted it and, and redeemed it and made it into the path to eternal life. And this is perhaps the most intense way that any of us can live the Paschal mystery. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he told them, If anyone wants to be a follower of mine, let him renounce himself, take up the cross, and follow me. Thank you. <clears throat> I just stay up here. Um, we'll go ahead and take a few questions, but uh, as always, before you ask your question, if you could wait for me uh, to get to you with the microphone, uh, which is for the taping. So you won't necessarily hear your voice over the loudspeaker, so make sure you speak up for everybody else's sake. So any questions for Father? Also be prepared. If I don't know the answer, I'll defer to the doctor here. I, I only have an STL, a license in sacred theology, but Chris recently received his doctorate, so I may have to defer to the master. The, the house theologian. The house theologian. <clears throat> okay. Father, I have your, a question. You, you mentioned that the suffering an athlete will do uh, to become a better athlete. What is your thoughts on the Christians, um, like at Fatima, that'll walk on their knees? Or in Magigori, they'll, they'll, they'll bare feet and walk the mountain. Mm -hmm. Is that some type of a, a spiritual exercise to make you a, a better Christian? Well, that's an example of what we call mortification. And this would be an exception to um, the general rule I mentioned that we don't go looking for suffering. I mean, just because we know suffering has been redeemed and that it's very valuable and useful doesn't mean we have to go looking for ways to suffer. However, there is in the Christian tradition um, this idea of inviting suffering at some level into our lives, whether through fasting I mean, when I fast, it's no doubt suffering. The headache comes. It's not fun. I don't do it because it's fun. It is definitely an example of suffering. The uh, pious examples of walking on their knees, um, there, there's all sorts of examples from uh, the past in the Christian tradi tradition. Those would be examples of ways in which we invite suffering at some limited level into our lives so that we can um, unite ourselves with Christ's suffering. So, in that way, in those examples you gave and the others I mentioned, we do go looking for suffering in that way. But what I was talking about in the talk, um, those maybe greater moments of the cross landing in our lives, uh, we don't have to go looking for those. We don't have to bring those upon ourselves. They'll usually find us. Um, but there is the tradition of trying to um, practice mortification or... Um, death to self in those ways of sacrifice to unite with Christ. And they are efficacious, just like our, our Lord said, uh, some things require prayer and fasting. So prayer definitely accomplishes things in the world, 
According to our Lord, fasting can accomplish even more. And that's what lies behind that whole idea of mortification, that it's efficacious. It can merit uh, graces for the world, just as carrying the cross does. Father, if the uh, pain or if the cross is physical, it seems like it's easier to bear. If the, if the cross is mental, which includes your emotions, how do you ex uh, accept it with love? Did everyone hear the question? Um, I think, well, first of all, not everyone who suffers from a physical cross might agree that that's easier. I, I think um, whenever I see these examples of children who are uh, paralyzed or suffer from terrible disabilities, I think, and, and they are, and, and the children are aware of these crosses. I think what a what a terribly heavy and difficult cross that must be. When the cross, though, is mental or emotional, uh, it may be psychologically more difficult to accept it with love. Is is that what you're asking? Um, I think, I don't know a lot about um, emotional or psychological disorders and in what way those would actually prevent the soul from enduring it with love. But I, I don't think that we can say that they are necessarily more difficult than physical uh, crosses. May, maybe one way they might be more difficult is that they're less visible. And, I mean, I've thought about this in the past. If, if someone uh, cannot walk, they certainly have the cross in their life, and other people can see that, and they might also see how that person is heroically carrying the cross, living that uh, life with love, enduring it, offering it to God. But if someone has an invisible cross, there might not be the consolation of giving others an example of, of how they are carrying it. Now, maybe some psychological or emotional crosses might become visible as well, and, and we don't carry the cross for the consolation of having others see us, to give an example of Christian living. But I, it has crossed my mind in the past that that might make a mental or psychological cross more difficult. Did you have in mind another way in which it is more difficult? I think accepting it with love means not blaming God for it, as I said, the first step of acknowledging that God has allowed this, He didn't cause it, He doesn't want it. So the first way we can go, go astray uh, with, the first way we can lose love in carrying a cross is by blaming God and allowing it to make us bitter. So we have to always keep in mind that God has allowed it, just as He has allowed many things, He has not caused it. And then spiritually to unite it with Christ's sacrifice on the cross, trusting that it will accomplish something. I think we can, mo we can motivate uh, our suffering with love by keeping in mind that it could be meriting graces for someone else, maybe for us, but maybe for someone we will never even meet. And that is the depths of self-sacrifice. We don't even have the consolation of seeing the reward or the benefit of it. It's like praying for for the intentions of the Immaculate Heart. Uh, we don't know what they are at that moment or the, or the intentions of the Sacred Heart of our Lord. We just offer those prayers or sacrifices trusting that someone is benefiting. And I think that's 
a very important way that we can carry the cross of suffering with love, which is trusting that someone somewhere is going to benefit if we humbly and uh, lovingly offer the cross. The other way, I, if we were to describe how someone lovingly offers the cross, as I said, it's without blaming God. It's also without grumbling, even without interior grumbling, which is a challenge for me. Uh, sometimes I can do pretty good not wearing it on my face, but God certainly hears about it, whatever the hardship might be. So we really show our love for Christ uh, by even you know, abstaining from that type of, of holding back. I mean, we make a more complete gift of ourselves. We, we more lovingly carry the cross when we try not to complain, not to grumble. Um, but maybe I would go back to the thing I said before that, which is trusting that someone somewhere is benefiting, even if it's not ourselves. And we are benefiting anyway, even if we can't see it tangibly, because we're sanctifying our lives and moving further on the road to heaven. I have two questions. Uh, one, is, is the doctrine of the cross the same thing as the term, the theology of the cross? And then the second question I have is, um, in a situation where, um, say, a woman is in an abusive marriage, the marriage is valid, uh, a valid marriage, but the abuse is such that uh, the woman, let's say, is uh, physically beaten on a regular she basis. She should leave. Keep yeah. going, though. Okay, so that, that was my question. Are you advocating that she stay there and, and suffer, or are you advocating that she be divorced? Okay, maybe I'll start with the second question. A good example of how cross, and unfortunately a very frequent and common example, right? I mean, the very institution that's supposed to bring us the most happiness in life is often, sadly, what causes people the most suffering. I think there were some very bad examples in the past of when priests, I'm told, I hear of this, I'm too young to remember it, but I'm told priests actually told women, uh, you have to stay in this unhealthy or maybe even abusive relationship and maybe even use the, the language, carry it's your cross, pick it up and carry it. But uh, canon law has right in it separation while the bond remains and canon law actually directs priests to counsel and advise a man or a woman to separate from a spouse if the living arrangement has become unbearable. Certainly if there's any abuse, physical, forget it. She should be removed immediately and God forbid if children are involved. Uh, but even if there's emotional abuse, even if you know there's no physical abuse, but life could be unbearable for someone in a, in a uh, failed marriage. The example I gave when I mentioned the thing, the number of things that could that could be a cross. I mentioned the obligation to remain faithful to the vows of a failed but valid marriage. Because even though the marriage may have failed in the sense of common life has dissolved and is maybe even irreparable, that does not mean that the vows were invalid. Maybe at the time they got married, they really both intended, understood, and agreed upon a covenantal relationship sealed by Christ at the altar of God's church. So it may be valid but it has now become unbearable. So that does not mean the person has to carry the cross by remaining in it, but what it does mean is that after he or she removes herself to protect her own safety, she can't remarry. 
The marriage vows, our Lord said, I say to you, if a man divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Put this up there next to the mystery of redemptive suffering. Suffering is one of the hardest teachings of the Christian revelation and another one that our world is rejecting. But the truth is, if the marriage is valid, it ends only at death. So even if the couple has to separate for the safety of one or both of the spouses, the marriage still exists. This is why canon law has a section called separation while the bond remains. And when I prepare young couples for marriage, we have a whole number of sessions, but when we get to the topic of the indissolubility of marriage and how it's lifelong, I actually pull out canon law and I show them that. I say, I want you to know that the church actually expects you to be on, to be faithful to these vows by not attempting remarriage, even if the marriage will fail in the sense of common life becoming uh, irreparable. So certainly, I do not mean to imply that carrying the cross in a failed marriage means staying in an abusive relationship. By no means, no. And the church, uh, hopefully, her ministers would be among the first to encourage someone to leave for their safety. The first question was, is the doctrine of the cross the same thing as the theology of the cross? That's harder to answer because uh, people could use that term, the theology of the cross, to refer to different things. I have a feeling, though, it's used most frequently to refer to what I've been talking about, which is that through Christ's act of complete kenosis, complete self-emptying, complete oblation, offering himself entirely back to God for us, um, the greatest act of love was revealed, he, he set a pattern for us to follow, that glory was achieved, uh, and that basically he has shown us how to live, even in small events in life, by death to self, self-denial. Even it's by, if it's not eating um, pork on, good fr on uh, Friday during Lent, it's a little act of death to self, which can be meritorious, and we, we learn all of that from the cross. I suppose there could be some theologians who use the term theology of the cross to refer to something distinct from that, but as far as I know, it would be in the same ballpark. Yeah. In accepting the cross or carrying the cross, when do we, with a bad headache, reach for the aspirin or go to the doctor? <laughs> Good question. Mm -hmm. To what extent we could say should, well, some might hear that question as, should what, to what extent are we entitled to avoid suffering? And as I said, we're not required to go looking for it. Uh, certainly, we don't believe that we have to resist all medical attention and, and oh, be glad that our life is going to end quickly. Um, I think if suffering is unavoidable, like a tragic death or uh, being abandoned in a relationship, uh, something that we cannot control, then we carry it by, as I said, um, going on in life, not letting it defeat us, by um, offering it with love and trusting that God is accomplishing something with it. But there are instances of suffering that uh, we can avoid, and perhaps we should, like trying to get rid of a headache so that we can accomplish other things. I don't think it would be wrong for someone in a for someone to choose not to take a Tylenol so that they could 
experience that pain just as someone might choose to skip a meal. I mean, we, that is voluntary suffering, um, but it's not required. I think that's the important thing because other religions, you know, have moved in that direction, uh, denying medical treatment. I don't even know if their reasons would be for, I don't think it is, uh, you know, so that they can unite their sufferings with Christ. But we are not required to go looking for suffering, and we are allowed to try to avoid it if we can, certainly in, in medical situations. But care, picking up and carrying the cross, I think primarily applies to when suffering comes into our lives that is unavoidable and that cannot be, uh, cannot be um, removed. Anybody else? In a society that advocates pleasing yourself and selfish desires, how can we encourage people who do have crosses or that we can see or know of hidden crosses, how can we encourage them to take up that cross and to, to suffer it with joy and with love? Well, first we point to our Lord always, point to His love. I mean, it, it's undeniable that He loved us. You know, even people who don't believe that He was divine will admit He was a man of tremendous great love. And so we can point to His example of suffering as a way to show His love and offer that to people to encourage them. We could also say, don't, hey, don't listen to what the world says. Don't listen to uh, the world saying that suffering is to be avoided at all costs. Because look at those mothers who endure labor. It's called labor for a reason, right, ladies? I mean, it's, it's hard work. L look at those uh, people who achieve success and good things by sacrifice, whether it's school or, um, you know, sacrificing vacations. Or I mean, look what parents do for their children. Look at how people make sacrifices for the benefit of others. I mean, this is not di completely dead in the world. There are plenty of examples of it. And we would just ask them to move from that to the spiritual level of how uh, spiritual suffering can also be beneficial to people by meriting graces. But in that, we're asking them to take a big step. We're asking them also to believe in Christ, to believe what was accomplished by His cross, and to believe that that can be, that we, we are invited to participate in that work of salvation, to share in it. I think always, though, starting with our Lord, because his love was undeniable, and we can offer that example to people to encourage and inspire them to endure suffering with love. When I was in the seminary, one of the priests who was on the faculty, he was one of the spiritual directors, kept giving us updates of this woman at home back in the States who was suffering terribly. I, I don't even know if he ever told us specifically. I think it was cancer, but she had a long, slow, agonizing death. And she wrote to him periodically reminding him that she was offering all of the pain for the priests who were being formed in seminary. She said, I'm asking God every day to let my suffering, which I cannot avoid, merit graces to turn those young men into saints. She said, I've asked for this. And he kept reminding us that someone at home was offering their suffering for us, you know, to encourage us and to inspire us. And, uh, you know, you need, you need faith to have that perspective on it. But I'll tell you, that was, 
sure made me want to pray more, made me want to uh, study harder. And um, I think there are great examples of people who offer their suffering with love and even with joy, as I say, without the grumbling, without the resentment. Um, and I think you know, we, can, we can encourage and inspire others. Last question. Okay, uh, I don't know if you uh, saw. There was an article today in uh, in today's Argus Leader. Um, it had to do with uh, came from the Vatican, and it was a, it sounded like a criticism of the, uh, the Western culture that puts great emphasis on health and spends a lot of money on health care, when a lot of third world countries don't even have basic health care. And I couldn't understand the. The reasoning for the for the criticism. I mean, it's it seems like you. There should be nothing wrong with doing all that you can uh, to preserve your health. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything other than that would seem like masochism, like like this self-flagellation kind of thinking. I don't know if you saw. I forgot to bring the paper. Uh, it, it was a very confusing article. Yeah, I didn't see it. Um. I can do what I should never do, which is speculate on something I'm not familiar with, but I can imagine that maybe the argument was, why is the first world spending all this money on extraordinary means? Maybe did it use those terms, talking about the life support and those things that might prolong life even when there's terminal illness, when the third world doesn't even have um, you know, vaccinations and things like that. I, um, I would also I would be curious to see the lines of that argument and whether or not it did come from the Vatican about if we're spending too much money to prolong uh, to prolong our lives. It probably is part of the the teaching the moral teaching on when we are um, entitled to reject extraordinary means, uh, meaning um, life support, because. If we are terminally ill and there's no, um, no reasonable hope for recovery, we are not required to you know, go on to a, a ventilator. Um, and maybe the church is seeing that we are obsessed with prolonging life even in terminal situations and that that uh, in some view might be selfish if the world is you know, fighting for basic health care. I think that's all I should say, you know, without seeing the article, but I'd be curious to read it. Well, it sounds like what your response makes sense. Uh, I read it rather quickly, and I didn't really make sense of it, but, but what you said there Yeah, if, if, right. if we're not talking about a terminal situation, no one would, I, mean, I don't think the Vatican would fault anyone for, I mean, resorting to life support to prolong and preserve life with the hopes of continuing life, yeah. I think it might specifically relate to that, uh, the issue of when, uh, you know, death is imminent and um, we might be uh, obsessed with prolonging life as long as we can, even in a state of terminal illness. I'm guessing about that. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Um, again, as always, you're welcome to, to uh, stay around as long as you want and not eat pork. Um, and we will.
See, it's an opportunity for your sanctification. That's what I had in mind. Um, and again, the next meeting in March, uh, just look for the date in, your, in the Bishop's Bulletin or your Parish Bulletins. Thank you for coming, and again, you're welcome to stick around. And Father's available to answer questions.